Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. When Zeb came in the sanctuary this morning, he looked up at the pulpit and said, it looks like a greenhouse. And that is by design. We are preparing for spring. We are getting ready for Easter. We're in the season of Lent. It's the 40 days prior to Jesus' passion on the cross. This is the way that the church for centuries has gotten ready for Easter, for the resurrection, for newness of life. We imagine that not only in nature, but also in our spirits and in our minds, this is like turning a great dimmer switch to brighter. And so each week, we are getting greener and greener because things in our world and in our lives and in our church are getting brighter. Our scripture passage this morning is from the gospel according to Mark. In chapter 2, I'll caution you that it's a fairly familiar passage, but it's one that, for whatever reason, has not gotten a lot of attention um, from me personally. And so I'd like for us to consider this story with as fresh ears and hearts as we can muster. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I chose to go to Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey for a variety of reasons. But one of those reasons was the dining hall. (laughs) It's true that the food was tasty. But I remember what it felt like the first time when I visited Princeton, that um, what it was like when I went into the dining hall. It was modern space, but the windows were large. It was a very high ceiling. It was hardwood floors, and the tables were round. They were large, round tables for students and faculty, guests and visitors, to sit together, to see one another as they ate and shared a meal together. And that captured for me what I hoped for in my three years of pursuing a Master of Divinity. Seminary, as many of us are aware, is preparation for vocational ministry, a life of of service. And to do that, it works best when students are able to share their lives together. It's what many of us would like to call intentional Christian community. And I was hungry and thirsty for that. 
Many of us grew up with this kind of Christian community in the church of the 20th century. This is what we knew and imagined in our youth group experiences or, or training union on Sunday evening or going to Ridgecrest for music week or even being a part of Baptist campus ministry where we chose to share our lives with one another around round tables, around round campfires, around service projects. This is what made our hearts burn, and I bet it's part of the reason why you are here this morning, seeking to rekindle what perhaps has been lost this past year. Well, this is what drew me to seminary, sitting around those tables. And I remember being a student there, we would try and pack these tables out. If someone came and sat at another table, we would quickly invite them over. We'd squeeze them in. We'd turn our trays. Yes, we'd eat. But more than that, we talked. We laughed. We, we shared jokes. We were irreverent and at times irrelevant. We were authentic and silly. I remember sitting there after dinner for two and three hours until they locked up the dining room and sent us off to our dormitories to study systematic theology in Greek. But there was one time where I didn't do a very good job of inviting people to my table, and I paid for it, I think. I'd like to say it was a Tuesday evening. It was an evening where we were to have a special lecture. Now, I know, for a lot of us, we think we would never in a million years carve out space on a weekday evening to go and sit in a stuffy old chapel and listen to somebody lecture. But we were nerds, and we were interested in that which we were studying. It's not unlike you all in your, your hobbies and your other interests, if someone who was an expert showed up, you would show up too. You'd click on that video of someone that you were interested in or, or look up that YouTube link to find um, and hear someone who knew their stuff. Well, the lecture that Tuesday evening I'd like to remember was Jürgen Moltmann. Now, for many of you all, that name does not in any way ring a bell, and you'd be forgiven for not knowing, but for us in the business of theology, we knew that Jürgen Moltmann was the premier 20th century theologian in the world, just an extraordinary individual who helped push the, the boundaries of, of what, it, what it meant to worship a crucified and resurrected Lord. And so we were very interested, and the campus was abuzz with alumna, with um, guests. Um, we saw the faculty that were there, um, people um, dressed up a little bit more than they would. And I remember gathering in the dining hall for supper. Um, many of the tables were quite full, and I was sharing a table with several of my other friends in preparation for going to hear Jürgen Moltmann preach. And to teach. During the meal, at a table very close by, was a lonely looking chap who was wearing a tweed jacket and a beard. It was not unlike the other individuals we'd find strolling the sidewalks of the streets of this college and university town. And 
We chuckled, thinking, maybe that's Jürgen. Maybe we should invite Jürgen over to join us. And we'd laugh at the prospect of, of thinking that this premier theologian could be in our midst like that. No, we knew, of course, that Jürgen Moltmann was with the board, was with the president. They were eating high on the hog there in Princeton town. Um, we laughed at the, the thought, and, and we were perhaps a little too noisy with our silliness as we watched this man struggle with his cup of coffee and put it back down, scribbling notes here and there. As everyone else filed out of the dining room to go to the chapel, we took our seats. It was crammed full. I want to say that it was videoed, which was a big deal in the late 20th century. And we gathered and listened to the lofty introduction. And then Jürgen Moltmann took to the podium. And it was the same man, the crusty old chap, that was seated right there by his lonesome, eating alone, anonymous. For none of us knew what Jürgen Moltmann looked like. Who in the world would have actually thought he might be in our midst? And as he began to teach, my friends and I put our heads down at what might have been had we simply invited him to join us for dinner. Oh my goodness. The conversation that we could have had with someone. This would be like if you were a football fan going to, to sit and be in the presence of Tom Brady. Or perhaps you loved old standards music and had the chance to hear Frank Sinatra. Or if you're a Gen Xer to be in the presence of Bono from U2. We had blown it. And why? Because we didn't see the opportunity to invite someone to join us at our table. Jesus, in our story, pushes the tables together. He invites those who are seated in different places to come and to join him. In Jesus, God chooses to dine with us, doesn't he? Jesus finds us in our disparate cafes at our lonely tables and invites us to pull our chairs together alongside him. And when that happens, a party ensues. That's precisely what happens in our story today. Jesus invites an outsider to join his cadre of close followers. Levi, especially with a, a play on words as we think about table imagery, he's at his own tax booth, the story tells us. He's by himself. And if you knew anything about tax collectors at this time, they were absolutely by themselves. They were sellouts to the Roman Empire. They, they extorted their own people for their own financial gain. They were not a popular people. And yet, inexplicably, Jesus points to him and says very simply, follow me. And he does. In response to being included, what does he do? He's invited Jesus is and his friends to join Levi at his house for supper. Well, if you do that, 
You've got to eat alongside Levi's friends. And what happens next is what has my attention this morning. They have a dinner party. And dinner parties at this time were a ceremonial kind of an experience. And they were an exclusive affair. You were very clear on who you chose to gather together because you certainly wouldn't want to pull people together that might poison the group chemistry, that might um, not be representative of the whole. There was genuine concern that you might invite somebody to your table that might not tithe food. It's kind of like um, the old table fellowship experiences that we used to have, the covered dishes and It's as though they would not invite some people to the covered dish because they wouldn't bring a very good covered dish. There were all kinds of rules about who you could bring and who you couldn't bring. And Jesus has no time for that kind of nonsense. Not one bit. Jesus creates space for friendships to develop. And in this story, it's around a meal. Lately, I've been reading a book about friendship. This is not a secret. Over the last several years in my doctoral project, um, I leaned into those friendships that I like to call soul friendship, or in the Celtic Christian tradition, anamkara, one who shares the cell with another. So I'm reading a book by Billy Baker of the Boston Globe. He has a book that came out recently titled, We Should Hang Out, a memoir of making friends. And in it, alongside his own experience of being a middle-aged adult, trying to determine the significance of friendships in his life, he reveals what many of us know but oftentimes don't put our finger on. And that is that social isolation has the power to kill us in spirit, mind, and especially body. He quotes a fellow by the name of Richard Schwartz, a psychologist, who says, when people become overscheduled, they don't shortchange their children or even their careers. No, they shortchange their friendships. I would add that they shortchange the place where many of us practice friendship, they shortchange the church. When we do this, the psychologist acknowledges, our health pays the price. And he makes a compelling case for why social isolation kills and that loneliness is toxic for our health. He articulates in looking at human history and how we used to be a people that shared space and time together more frequently that that modern humans seem to be growing lonelier with each succeeding generation. Years ago, anthropologist Ashley Montagu, he notes, says that the principal contributor to loneliness in this country is television. It seems laughable, but if you think about it, our screens are those things that actually strangely, ironically, keep us from pulling our tables together. We find ourselves in our own little world, in our own little carved out space. And even though we're more connected than we ever have been, 
We've never felt lonelier. You're dining alone, y'all. And chances are, the sadness that you're feeling right now, that anxiety that you feel and carry around, that grief that weighs you down, it's all because of loneliness or the anxiety of increased separation from others. We feel the way we do, y'all, because we're dining alone. You heard me say it earlier. Some of you all participated in the project Anamkara, sharing your life with someone else, soul friendship, practicing friendship. I was drawn to this study because I feel that not only in my own life, but in your lives and in the life of the church, particularly middle-aged adults, our friendships are not like they used to be. There are a few things I learned, however, in my research about our predilection to being involved in one another's lives, especially in friendship. A few things. Friendship requires three things for us to be in relationship to one another in a way that we're sharing our lives and being Christ to one another. The first is that friendship requires intentionality and showing up. Friendship at its most basic level is about proximity. It's where we choose to push our tables together just like Jesus did. The second requirement for friendship is that Friendship requires reciprocity. It requires listening and sharing. It means putting the other first and then also being vulnerable yourself. Stop me if you've heard this, but this sounds a whole lot like what Jesus does to us in the Gospels. And lastly, friendship requires commitment. Friendship doesn't just happen. There is a kind of magic and sense of gift from God about friendship. But consider this. Friendship occurs, they have found, when people choose to be engaged with one another, doing an activity together for 200 hours. That's what it requires for us to... To have and develop a new friendship, it requires 200 hours of being together, which sounds like a lot until you consider your own lives, the individuals that you shared dorm space with, those individuals that you went on fishing trips with, your running partner when you were in your 20s, your coworkers when you would take business trips together, colleagues and other individuals that you did things with, that proximity, that commitment to one another, the way in which in the midst of those moments you recognized that it's selfish for you to monologue and not ask questions and make space for the other. This is what friendship in Christ's name looks like and is demonstrated in Jesus. 
The image that has been coming to mind these months of plague and pandemic has been rooted in the psalm that has gotten our attention. God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. And if I've identified that if God is our refuge and strength, then the church, the body of Christ, the people gathered in Jesus' name, we too should be refuge and strength to others. And for me, the idea of a base camp comes to mind. Last week I showed an image of this extraordinary mountain in Pakistan, the ninth highest and tallest in the world. And at the the base of this extraordinary mountain was a beautiful meadow. You had to look hard, but you could see these buildings and the rooftops. It was clearly a base camp, a launching pad, and also a place of refuge and strength for those who go and explore and hike up on that mountain. The mountain, of course, is life. It's school, it's work, it's retirement. And that's the focus and gets the energy in our lives. Church's base camp is is therefore a place where we can come off the mountain. Goodness gracious, we know how important it is to get off the mountain. It's exhausting up there. The, The air is thin. In fact, if we go too high and away from base camp, we won't even know that There's not enough oxygen for our minds to work well, and and we're in the death or danger zone. We know this. We know that if we spend too much time out there and not catching our breath in the gathered together that we risk not only our life, but those that we're leading up and down the mountain. So I like this image of base camp because the mountain is vast and can be exceedingly lonely. But base camp can be a place where the the mountain climbers can gather and push their tables together. It's a place, base camp is, where friendships can be nurtured. Because we have stories to tell about what it's like out there on the mountain. So we choose to gather together off the mountain occasionally. And the more we do so, the stronger the friendships get because we're showing up. We're practicing good listening and and sharing skills. We're finding out about how you nearly fell off of that side of the mountain this past week or how you slipped because you missed your step or how you got lost, but also about how you got found and about how someone came up alongside you and guided you back down to base camp, about how someone shared some of their food and nourishment to give you the strength you needed to seek safe refuge. So you could build up your strength. I like this image of base camp as a place that's not our destination, but rather something that that we come as a place of intersection with others to give us the strength and energy that we need, the sustenance and nourishment that comes from Christ Jesus, shared with one another freely so that we can go back out on the mountain of life and school and retirement with renewed energy, fervor, purpose, and passion. Beginning this Wednesday, we're going to gather together again midweek, give you an opportunity to come down off the mountain. We're going to do so by gathering outside, as we did this past fall, out in the back, underneath the covered 
space that we have between our MFC and the church. We have tables set up, and guess what? They're going to be pushed together. Why? To give us an excuse and a reason to come down off the mountain and gather here at base camp. So absolutely, on your way down off the mountain, stop at your favorite restaurant, grab some takeout. Come, let's be outside together. Has anybody told you the days are going to get longer now? And once we have a brief devotion, a brief reminder of why we go out into the mountain and the world in the first place and have a brief prayer time, you're going to be given opportunities and options for you to engage with one another in a way that's life-giving and not hard and doesn't feel like work. I mean, doesn't that sound refreshing? Doesn't that sound like an oasis? Something different, something unique among people that you can trust, love, and know? We might call that base camp. God calls it the kingdom of God. Friends, Billy Baker says, friends are the family you choose. And in our story, Jesus chooses each of us to be at his table. Jesus chooses each of us to be his family. Now, this is a radical concept now, but it certainly was then. And Jesus doesn't shy away from how this is controversial. In fact, he doubles down on it, and boy, does he get raked over the coals for it. In the next passage after the one that we just read, this is what happens. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. That is, they were not having a party. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. When Jesus is in the room, he pulls the tables together and makes the gathering a party I know, we don't, we don't see that unless you stop for a moment with this story. But y'all, when they're having dinner together and the wrong people are there, trust me, Jesus was having a party. They were laughing. They were sharing their lives together. I can imagine that Jesus was right there in the mix of things, listening, sharing, creating opportunities for dialogue. And shocker, that was not popular. But Jesus, in these moments afterwards, he says, oh, you can't. <laughs> you can't fast and be all dour and putting on ash and sackcloth when the, the star of the show is here, when the bridegroom is present, when the expert is here. No, you, you can't help when Jesus is around but to pull your table up next to him because he's inviting us to do so because he knows that when we do... That's when life is richest. And when that happens, something new is created. That whole bit about you can't put a patch on something old, you can't put wine in old. You, that image, y'all, is to challenge us 
to think in new ways because this new kind of community creates new things and new fruit. So we've got to be courageous and strong to live into that new expression. You've heard me characterize this past year as being a season of grief. That is, a time of, of loss. And there has been much that we have lost. But at the same time, it's also a time of new things. And we need to get our heads around this newness because a lot of things are becoming new. A lot of things have changed. And a lot of things are changing. But the newness of life that comes with Jesus doesn't happen in isolation. It doesn't happen when we dine alone or tune in remotely. And isn't that word remotely just a terribly appropriate word for our moment? Remote. Which as we know means far away, distant, far off. Dining alone. <laughs> no. Newness of life happens when we come off the mountain and we gather together at base camp. Newness of life happens when we push our tables together. Newness of life develops in laughter and in joy as we spend time with our friends just like Jesus. I invite you as we hinge right now in our time together to move from holding God's word to us to doing something about it. We have more present gathered now than we have for some time and for good reason. But my prayer is that we're convicted by this story and of a God who wishes us to draw together. To choose to share our lives with one another. Because our life and the quality of our life is at stake. So in these next few moments, I'd like for you to consider how you can pull your table up alongside someone else. And who you know is dining alone. Yeah, we may, we're going to have to be creative. But let's not use social isolation and social distancing as an excuse for staying apart any longer. In these next few moments of silence, consider the witness of Jesus' life, ministry, and teaching. And also know that I will be down front for those who wish to pull their table up to ours, to join us in fellowship as we gather together at base camp to give us the strength and the energy that God provides us as we go back out on the mountain. Time is yours.